You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. Uh, good morning, Harvest. You take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read this morning verses 14 and 15 and dive in to look at, look at these two very powerful verses in God's Word. Um, I hope you're ready for that. I hope your hearts are filled with worship for our Savior, and you're just ready now to place yourself underneath the authority of God's Word. There's nothing like doing that. It's a good place to be. So uh, we're trusting that God will do that for us this morning. You know, every once in a while, I find myself uh, watching people. I never plan on it, but I, uh, it kind of happens. Anyone else like that? We just kind of Every once in a while, I end up watching people. For me, it usually happens in a mall while I'm waiting. Um, i just standing outside of a store. People walk by, and every once in a while, I'll, I'll start wondering about what's, what's their story like? What is it, what's going on in that person's life? Or sometimes even when I'm driving along the highway on a long road trip, a car will be whizzing by me, and I'll think the same thing. Wow, I wonder if there's a family over in that car. I wonder what their story is. I wonder what's going on. And... And a few weeks ago, it happened to me again. I was in an airport waiting for uh, a plane or a trip along with a number, lots of other people who are waiting, and all of a sudden, I found myself watching people again and wondering, I wonder what their stories are. There was a lady over in the corner who was working on her, uh, her laptop computer. She was just so zoned in on the computer it looked like to me she was uh, working on some kind of business plan, getting ready for a meeting that she was probably about to have at the other end of her trip. And I began to think, well, I wonder what her story is. Um, what are the things that she's juggling in her life right now? She looked like maybe, you know, she's obviously involved in the business world, but I wonder, did she have a family back at home? Um, Does she have to leave the family to be able to go on the trip? What's she juggling to be able to do that? What's her husband do? Um, are the two of them having to juggle, juggle agendas, juggle things to be able to uh, accomplish this? I, I just kind of wondered what was going on in her life. And then on the other side of the room, there was this businessman who was clearly working the phone. I mean, he was, had his cell phone, and he was like going... After it, he was not having a conversation with one of his kids or anyone like that. He was clearly talking to a customer and trying his best to keep this customer. He was just working it over and over and over again. And I began to think, well, I wonder what his story is. You know, what's motivating him? What's driving him to be in this place at this time doing what he's doing? And that's a really important question. I mean, what, what is it that motivates any of us? What motivates you? What is the driving factor or the things that, that kind of drive you to, to do what you do? You see, the choices we make, the decisions that we make, the kinds of, of lives that we live, they are all influenced and shaped by something. The question is not if something is influencing you. The question is what is controlling you? And God has a lot to say about that in the, in the Word of God. The Scriptures are full of examples of this. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, God himself reminds us right, that about what God wants, what he wants the driving force of our lives to be. God wants his love for you to control you. 
Look at what it says here in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you're like me this morning, you read that first phrase in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, it's like that's, that's a desire of my heart. That's what I want. I want the love of Christ to control me. And many of you all across this room are saying, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I want the love of Christ to, to control me. See, our lives are like, um, kind of like a bicycle wheel, like a bike tire. And uh, you'll notice in the bike tire picture, there are numerous spokes, right? All these spokes lead out to the rim of the tire and the tire itself. Uh, the spokes, if, the, if this is a picture of our lives, the spokes would represent all the decisions or choices that we make that lead out to all the different areas of our lives, like the choices that we make about our family life and the choices that we make about our business and the choices we make about friendships, the choices we make about school, the choices we make about, about family, all the different kinds of choices that we make. Right? Those are the spokes. But you see the spokes in this picture, they're connected to what? They're connected to a hub. In fact, with, with, without the hub of the tire or the wheel, the, the spokes are just going to... There's no tire, right? There's no wheel. It, it, it has to be connected to a hub. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 is teaching us. It's telling us that God wants his love for us, Christ's love for us, to control us, to be the hub of our lives, to influence all the choices, all the decisions we make in all the different areas of our lives, that this will be the central focus. The central focus of our lives would be the love that Christ has expressed for us, the love that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. And if you're like me this morning, you're saying, yep, 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 I want that. I want the love of Christ to control me. I want it to be the, the hub. I want it to be the central kind of focus of my life. I want it to be the thing that drives me, that, that motivates me. And so here in these two verses, just these two verses, I want, what we want to share with you this morning from God's Word, three important truths, three things that have to be absolutely true of your life if the love of Christ is going to control you. You ready? Ready, church? Okay, here's the first one. The first one's this. You can only have one option. There's only one option. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. The word control means to be hemmed in or to be constrained. Right? To be hemmed in or to be constrained. In other words, there aren't multiple options. Okay? There's not an option A, there's not an option B, there's not an option C, there's not an option D. There's only one option. The love of Christ is to be that one option. The love of Christ is the only option. It controls us. There aren't multiple options. A great illustration of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Just flip over a couple of pages in your Bible the 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. You want to see a great picture of what it means to be controlled, to be hemmed in, to be constrained. Look at verse 14. 
Here, the Apostle Paul is writing about our triumph in Christ. And he says this in verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now he's using a picture here. He's using a, uh, a wartime picture to describe how we've triumphed in Christ. He's taken a picture of a general that's gone out to battle. So you've got to, you have to envision this. This isn't like now time war. This is like old time war, ancient kind of war, where this, this general, this Roman general, has left the city with his army, and he's gone out to fight against the enemy, and he's won. He's been victorious. And now he's on his way back from his victory, and as he gets back to the gates of the city, there are three, four, just try to envision this, three, four, five, six people deep on either side of the street cheering the triumphant general who's come back with his victory. And as he strolls through those streets, he has this triumphant procession that's a, a group of people that are proceeding behind him. They are the prisoners of his battle, the prisoners of his war, the spoils of his victory. He comes walking through the streets as the victorious general. People are cheering wildly. We won. We won the battle. This is amazing. And before him are the, behind him are these people in single file. They are hemmed in. They are constrained. They are chained. They are following in single file behind the general. Now, with that as the backdrop, let's read chapter 2, verse 14 again so you can, that can kind of jump off the page for you a little bit more. He says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads, who does he lead? Us in triumphal procession. So in this picture, are we part of the crowd or are we the ones who are falling behind the general? We're the ones who are falling behind the general. And you say, wow, that's kind of a weird way to describe how triumphant we are in Christ. You know, that God somehow is the conquering general and that we now are, are in single line file behind him. And, and I say, yeah, okay, I get that. But not if you understand how, how enormous, huge, and overwhelming and amazing the love of Christ is for you. It's like God sends his son to this earth to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. The gospel is proclaimed to you. The good news is proclaimed to you that this is what he has done for you. It's an expression of the love of Christ in your life. And it's like you are then conquered by the love of Christ. You can't help but be conquered by the love of Christ. And it's like you give your life to, this, to God who has, who, has, who has died for you, who has raised again for you. And you just you give your life for him and you follow single file behind the one now who is in control of your life. And you say, Man, I don't know if I'm really comfortable with that. Well, that's because you don't understand, you do not understand how much God loves you. It's when you begin to understand how much God loves you, you begin to become constrained and hemmed in by that love. Now if you're like me, you know that uh, the problem in my life and the problem, I guess, in most of your lives is that um, even though I want the love of Christ to be the single option in my life, there are other things that vie for control in my life. Anyone else like me? 
The love of Christ is not always in control of my life. It's not always the single motivating factor of my life. So because that's true, what, what should we do? And this is what we want, right? We want what chapter 5, verse 14 says. We want the love of Christ to control us. We want it to motivate us. We want it to be the driving factor in our lives. But why is it, why is it there are so many other things that are vying for control? And what should I do when they buy for control of my life? Well, let me suggest a few things for us. Here's the first thing. Become aware of the things that are competing for control in your life. You want, you want Christ's love for you to be the only option in your life? Become aware of the things that are competing for control in your life. Now, I'm going to uh, share some personal things about my life, and the reason why I'm about to do this is not to draw attention to myself, but somehow to help, hopefully to help you in the process of trying to understand and become aware of the things that vie for control of your life. So if you want to know what those things are, I think you need to ask three questions and answer those questions. Okay? If you want to understand the things that are vying for control, ask these three questions. Here's question number one. What's the pattern of my thought life? Okay, the key word there is pattern. What's the pattern of my thought life? What do you think about? What do you think about most of the time when you are all when you have alone time? What does your mind naturally go to? Okay, so it's one thing to think about something; it's another thing to obsess about something. Right? That's the way the key pat, the word pattern there is important. For example, this year, uh, about a year ago, this time, April, um, uh, Brenda and I really sense that God was asking us. We were in the Word, and we really believed that God was asking us to leave where we were serving, and to just leave, and then, and then God was going to show us where we were going to go. Okay? That was a year ago. April 2014. And um, I was all excited about it when we first did it. <clears throat> and then, uh, then I just felt like I just... I said, okay, God, like, where, where's it, wh what's next? What's, what do you want next for us? And he began going through a series of events and situations, and I began to learn how to trust God more deeply in my life because of the uncertainty that was going on. But I also found at times, I also found at times that my mind was being dominated by a lack of, of confidence, a lack of security. I mean, everything that I owned actually fit in the back of my car. And, and I live like, I, we were living like that, going from place to place for, for, for a whole year, just kind of longing and longing and longing for something else, longing for something else. And I began to realize that the pattern of my thought life was being brought back to this uncertainty, what was going on in my life. And my life just seemed to be always in upheaval and, and uncertain. And so I be, started to become anxious about the uncertainty. And Every free moment that I had, when I woke up in the morning, the first thing I thought about is, God, what are you going to do? God, what are you going to do? God, what are you going to do? Nothing wrong with thinking about it, nothing wrong with praying about it, but there's a lot of things wrong with obsessing about it. And I began to realize that the root of all that was that I longed for a sense of security, and I thought that if I controlled the situation, I could, I could meet that need. One of the key questions you need to ask yourself is this. What is the pattern of my thought life? If you want to know what's vying for control in your life, what's competing with the love of Christ, ask yourself that question. Here's another question you want to ask. You want to ask this question. 
What am I generous towards? Okay, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about time. We're talking about energy. What are the things that I spend my time on? What I, what I dedicate my energy towards? What do I, I give towards? And then likewise, what are the things that I don't give to? Okay, a number of years ago, I realized something about myself. Again, I'm just peeling back the onion here, okay? Just so hopefully to help you. What I began to realize a number of years ago by myself is that I loved to work. Absolutely loved to work. There was nothing that, and, you know, the very few other things that I love to do as much as, I, as much as work. And for some of you, they think, wow, that's guy, that guy's really weird. For some of you, as I talked to somebody at the previous service, it's like, yeah, I can really relate to that. Um, I began to understand that I would, I would dedicate all my extra energy, all my extra time into, into work. And I began to ask myself this question, why am I so generous towards that and not generous towards this? And I began to realize that the, the, reason, the reason why I dedicated so much time to work was because I was finding my significance in what I did. My whole identity was wrapped up in what I was able to do. I was being affirmed by what I did. And so, what, what are you generous towards? And you can understand, like, that whole idea of, of significance and affirmation and by the things of what I do, that's in direct conflict with the love of Christ being the controlling factor of your life. And here's the third question. The third question is this. What are my most uncontrollable emotions? Okay. What are the mo- your most uncontrollable emotions? There are times in my life when I will, f- I will just feel anger well up inside of me. I'm not proud of that. I'm definitely not proud of that. But I will, there are times when I do that, and I began to analyze, why is it am I feeling like that? Why is, why is that bubbling to the surface in my life? And the reason why I, I came to this realization is, that what was bringing that on is my, an unhealthy longing to be accepted and affirmed. And when I didn't feel like I was being accepted and affirmed, I would respond in anger towards people, even if they weren't the ones who were responsible for that in the first place. All of those things are in direct competition with the love of Christ. In fact, if you understand the Scriptures and who you are in Christ, when you come to experience the love of Christ... Jesus Christ himself meets all of those needs. He meets all of those needs. And so you have to become aware of the things that are competing for attention and control in your life. You have to become aware of those things. What do you do next? Then you take all those options off the table. You take them all off the table. You stop entertaining these other options. I was in a meeting last week where somebody said, Here's three options of what we can do. And the second one that they, they suggested was like, I can't do that. That's, that's like wrong. Take that off the table. We're not even going to consider that. And some of you were in meetings like that last week too, where somebody presented different options for you, and you were like totally comfortable saying to that, some, that person, I can't do that. We can't do that. There's no way that we can do that. How come in like business settings and and, and, and school settings and other situations like that that we're so quick to excuse all these other options. But when it comes to our personal lives, we're not willing to, to cast aside all these competing options. And that's what we have to do. We have to take the options off the table. How do you do that? By proclaiming that you're dead to them. 
Romans chapter 6. I am dead to sin and alive to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. When these options come, come up under the table of your life, when they begin to fight for in competition with the love of Christ as being the, the controlling factor in your life, what do you do? You say, I'm, I'm, I'm dead to that. Who I am in Christ makes me dead to that. You repent. When these things begin to come up into your life, you say, God, I'm like, I'm wrong. I can't, I can't, I, I, I'm sinning here. Forgive me. I want the love of Christ to control me. I'm going to turn away from this. I'm going to turn away from it. And we cry out in desperate need and help and proclaim to the Spirit of God, the one who the only one who can produce change in our lives. Please help me. Help me. Help me be dead to this. Help me to be alive to Christ. Got to take the options off the table. In Christ, you're significant. In Christ, you're secure. In Christ, you're accepted. In Christ, you're affirmed. Not through work. Not through anything else. And not only do we have to take them off the table, we have to replace them with the love of Christ. It's not enough to remove something, but you have to replace the old with something new. Something that will fill the hole. Something that will fill the void. Something that will fill the space. Because once you take something off the table, something else will come screaming into its place quickly. Unless you replace it with the love of Christ. And you will only replace it with the love of Christ if you come to one conclusion. All right, look at what it says in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Of all the things that you know that are true in your life, of all the, of all the things that are true about your life, all the things that you know that are true of your life, if you're a follower of Christ, this, this one truth is absolute. This one truth is foundational. This is like a first truth in your life. It's this. You have to come to this one conclusion. Jesus took your place. If you want the love of Christ to be the controlling factor in your life, this has to be the foundational truth of your life. Jesus took your place. You look at verse 14. He says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You have to recognize there's this, there's this need in your life. One died for all. I mean, why would anyone, why would anyone die for somebody else? Why would anyone be willing to risk their life for somebody else? Why would anybody stop their car jump into the freezing waters of Lake Ontario to save someone that they saw that was drowning? Why would they do that? Well, the only answer to that question is need. They see a need. I mean, you see the interviews of these people that risk their lives. They run into burning buildings. Some of them jump into water to try to save somebody. The interviewer will stuff the microphone right in their face and tell them, why in the world did you do that? And they just kind of look black at, back at them with some kind of blank stare. And they say, what do you mean? Why are you asking me that? It just seemed obvious to me what I was supposed to do. There was a need. 
I saw the person who was drowning. I stopped my car. I jumped in the water and I tried to pull them out. That, that's, why, that's why someone, one, is willing to die for all because, because there's a need. It's a shared need. He died for all. Why did Jesus die for all? Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Right? This is a shared need. It's a desperate need. God's love will never control you until you realize how desperately lost you are without the love of Christ. Some of you have uh, driven a car where you have been hopelessly lost. You're driving the car, you're hopelessly lost. The only problem is you're not aware that you're hopelessly lost. Everybody else in the car who's driving with you knew that you were hopelessly lost. But you're either not willing to admit it or you weren't aware of it. In fact, you're not even willing to listen to the lady talking out of your phone. She's saying, turn right, and you're saying, I'm not turning right. She says, turn right, no, I am not turning right. I'm not lost. I'm not lost. No, I'm not lost. And when it comes to sin, a lot of people just don't believe that they're lost. When it comes to things like the sins of, of commission, things that we do that God is opposed to, or things of omission, things that we don't do that God is for. Some people just don't feel like they're all that lost. They be, oh yeah, I, they might say, well, I get sin, you know. But sin is more like, it's more like the dent that you find in your car door after somebody's hit your car door with their door. Do you know that? You ever had that happen to you? You, get, you go out, you park in the mall, and you come back out to your car to realize that there's this little dent in the, in the side of your door. Clearly someone opened their door and they just kind of rammed your door. They didn't leave a note, right? Didn't leave a note. They just like, and you, you see, you, you know what that feels like, right? I can't believe, I can't believe that person did that. I can't believe they, they were so ignorant that they wouldn't leave a note, wouldn't leave me all that kind of stuff. I just can't believe they did that. That's like really irritating, right? It's really irritating, but it's not devastating. And for some of us, when we consider sin, when we consider sins of commission, sins of omission, the things that cause us to fall short of the glory of God, I just really believe that some people, when they think of sin, the things that we, that we do before God, all we do, we just view them as an, as an irritation, a small little dent in the door. But you know what sin's like? Sin's like an asteroid or a meteor that comes crashing down to earth, and when it hits the earth, it leaves a crater, a, a, a hole the size of a crater. That's what it's like. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It's not an irritant. This is devastation. And... For us to come to the, for us to understand that it's the love of Christ that is going to control us, we have to understand that Jesus took our place. We need to recognize this huge need that we have in our lives, and then we need to realize that Jesus became our substitute. He met our need, 
It says one died for all. Do you see that there in verse 14? That one has died for all. This was a very unique one. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus' way, of course, was the what? It was the cross. Jesus' way was, was the cross. We've sung about that this morning, how that our shame was placed on his shoulders. He bore all of our, of, of our, of our sin, right? He, he did that. He did that. He became the perfect sacrifice that was able to pay the penalty for the wrath of God. Because God is holy, sin demands judgment. This is devastating. This is, this is not an irritant. This is devastation. Right? Because God is holy, sin demands judgment. And since I have sinned and since you have sinned, we will be judged with death, eternal separation from God, hell itself. But because God is love, sin requires a sacrifice. That's good news, people. Absolutely fantastic news. Right? Sin requires a sacrifice. One died, and then this little word, four. Four. He died for all. This small little word with so much power, he took our place. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. Just look at that, this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! We have to realize that Jesus became our substitute, and when we respond in faith to what he has done alone, not what we do, not what we can do, not any potential that is in us, but everything that God has done for us, everything that he has done for us, and he has done alone in Jesus Christ. Then we can revel in the penalty that has been paid. Because it says here in verse 14, right, one has died for all, therefore all have died. When Jesus died in our place, the penalty for our sins was paid once and for all. By Jesus' death, the death penalty of sin has been paid for all of us who have placed our faith in him and what he has done. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he said, this is the good news. Christ died for our sins. That's why Apostle Paul wrote these, this beautiful prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Start, I read this beginning at verse 17. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. Being rooted and grounded in love, we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you, want, if, if you want the love of Christ to control you, you have to understand it's the only option. 
And you have to come to one conclusion. And then lastly, here's the third thing. You have to have one purpose. One purpose. One purpose. Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, if I had, before the service started, if I stood out in the main entrance with a clipboard in my hand and tried to ask a hundred of you this question, why did Jesus die? I wonder what answers I would have gotten from everybody. Okay, so survey says, okay, survey says top 100 Christians here at, at Harvest Oakville said this morning, why did Jesus die? This is the kind of answers I think I would get. Answer number one would be to pay the penalty for all my sins. Good answer? Great answer. That's what we just preached. I've just been talking about that for the last 10 minutes. Great answer. Not a good answer. That's a great answer. A great answer. That won't be. Maybe that was number one. Maybe that was number two. I don't know. Maybe number one would have been uh, Jesus died so that through faith I could have eternal life, heaven forever with God. Right? Maybe that would be. Is that a good answer? That's right. Catching on. That's good. Right? I'm guessing that further down the list would be the answer the Apostle Paul gave here. It's not that the Apostle Paul doesn't believe in those other answers. I mean, he preached and wrote about those answers too. But here in verse 15, do you notice what he said? What he said about the purpose was? Why did Jesus die? He says this, and he died for all. Why did he die? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Jesus died so that we could live for him, not ourselves. That's why he died. He died for that, one of the, that reason. And that is the, the one purpose of our lives. That is the single purpose of our lives. If you, if you know Christ and you want the love of Christ to control you, to be the motivating factor in your life, you have to have this one singular purpose. Your one singular purpose is to live for Christ. To bring glory to God, to live for Christ. That's what you're that's what you're gonna do, what you need to do. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says that we have been accustomed to seeing ourselves as the shape of a receptacle or a cup that holds all of our needs. That's how we view our lives, our relationship with God. Many people view it as our lives are like a receptacle or a cup that, that holds all of our needs. And so we have this tendency then to approach Jesus, to approach God with our hands open wide, ready to receive everything that he can give us. And I'll tell you, wow, 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 all the amazing benefits that we have in Christ. If you want to know a list of those, just read Ephesians chapter 1. A list of just listing one after another all the blessings that are ours in, in Christ. And um, it's, it's certainly true that we have all these amazing needs that are met in Christ. We have this tendency to approach him with our hands open wide. We approach him kind of like a, a, a almost like a, sometimes like a, a vending machine. You know, we, prayer goes into, into God. We press A5 with the hope that something will come out. But if that's the extent, if that's it, if that's the extent of your relationship with Jesus, then you're just in this for yourself. 
And when you're in this for yourself, you have opened yourself up. You've opened the door for all these other things to gain control over your life. The purpose of my life is to live for Jesus. Ask yourself this question. What actually is the purpose of your life? What is, the, what is your functional mission statement? Not the written one, but what is the one that you actually function by? Some of you might say, if I were to ask you that, what, what, is it, what is the thing that really drives you? What's your, what's your one purpose in life? Well, right now you might say, well, my one purpose right now is to be the best parent that I can be. That's a good mission statement. That's a good mission. It's just not great. You hear me? It's a good one. It's just not a great one. Somebody else might respond, well, I, th- I think right now my mission in life is to lead my company well, to treat my customers well, treat those who work, for, work with me and for me in our company, to treat them well. And I'll tell you, that is such, that's such a good, that's a good mission. That is a good purpose, but it's just not a great one. And others might say, well, I think right now in my stage of life, I, my, that God just, you know, the mission in my life is the plan, the purpose is just to, you know, be the best friend that I can be or to be the best son or daughter that I can be. I just, that, that's what I believe I'm, 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 call, I'm called to be right now. That's, that's a good thing. That's just not a great thing. Whatever we do, whether it's whatever vocation we're in, whatever stage of life we find ourselves at, whatever decision that we're making, we live for Jesus. That's the foundational starting point and purpose. And you say, well, why? Why? Why does he have to be my one purpose? Well, look at what it says again in verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you understand, if you can just begin to catch a glimpse of the magnitude of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, it all makes sense. When you understand the the magnitude of the sacrifice that Christ paid on our behalf, that for our sake He died and was raised. For your sake, he died and was raised. When you understand the magnitude of that, it all makes sense. One option, one conclusion, one purpose. And so as we begin to embrace those things, we begin to understand that it is Christ's love that actually is in control of our lives. You see, something is vying for control in your life, and God wants his love for you to control you. Maybe you just need, maybe you just need to revisit the one conclusion, that fundamental truth, that, that the truth above all truths, the one that lays the foundation for everything else, that Jesus took your place. You made to revisit that and, and meditate. For some of you here, maybe you need to come to that conclusion. That Jesus took your place. Is that the conclusion you've come to? If not, why not? And I want to invite you this morning to come to that conclusion. Don't put it off. Let the Spirit of God minister into your heart and your soul, give you the gift of faith now so that you can respond. You can respond 
as you need to respond to, to Christ, to God, like Paul says in Romans chapter 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You are desperately lost without the love of Christ. And Jesus died to take your place. All you need to do this morning, and and it's not a little thing, it's a big thing, you need to confess with your mouth, believe in your heart who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And receive this amazing gift. Come to the conclusion, Jesus took your place. He took your place. For others of us, like, like me, you need to put the stake in the ground. Again, there's no other options, no other options, no other options. I don't want any other options. This is a stake that you have to continually plant in your life over and over and over again. As these other competing options come flaring back into your life, you say, no, no, this, Christ loves me. I know who I am in Christ. I know what my identity is in Christ. This is who I am. I am dead to these other things. I'm going to put that stake in the ground. It's the love of Christ. God's love for me is just so immense. And I have this single purpose, single purpose to live for Christ and not for myself. Okay, church, it's time to respond. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and respond to God's word. You talk to God, ask him what it is. Ask the Spirit of God to make it clear to you how you should respond. Just pray the simple prayer, Spirit of God, I ask that you would, you would convict me of sin, or you would encourage me, or you would challenge me. Do whatever you need to do right now. Just point out in my life how I need to respond to the truth of God's word this morning. Father, we pray for the lost to be found today. Spirit of God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Show people their spiritual blindness. Help them to respond. Father, we pray for single-mindedness and purpose. so hard sometimes just to imagine that you love us like this. Lost in our sin and yet you loved us like this. It's just hard to imagine. And yet Here we read from your book, your words, your message to us. You loved us. 
One died for all. So Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do right now, right across this auditorium. And People are planting their statements. They want the love of Christ to rule in their lives. I know that. And they're re- reaffirming their single-minded purpose to follow Christ, live for Christ. And Father, I have to believe there are people who are moving now from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom you love. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.